Glad to see you all tonight. We are um, working through our series on scripture called Did God Really Say? Uh, and tonight we're going to look at uh, an attribute of the Bible, an attribute of scripture, uh, specifically its sufficiency. And uh, just to put it in, in the context of the whole series again, what we've seen the last two weeks um, is that for us to understand what the Bible is and how it functions, we have to begin with the fact that God is self-revealing, that he has spoken in space and time, and because of that, he is truly knowable. Then last week, we talked about the necessity of Scripture, that we need that revelation of God to truly know him um, and God has graciously provided it. Tonight, as we look at the sufficiency of Scripture, we're going to look at the Bible as being um, everything we need for life and godliness, to borrow another New Testament phrase. Um, next week, we will look at the clarity of Scripture, and then uh, finally, the authority of Scripture. And then once we have all those laid down, we'll look at the power of of scripture. But tonight, as we look at the sufficiency of scripture, I'd like you to turn to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible this morning or this evening, there's one in the back of the pew in front of you. If you use the index right at the front, you should have no problem finding the New Testament book of 2 Timothy. No, the slide is not right. 2 Timothy, please, chapter 3. Uh, the uh, phone number, however, is correct. And so if during the course of this sermon you have any questions and you'd like to text them in, just directly following the sermon, we will have a time for Q&A. Um, so go ahead and make use of that. Tonight we're looking at the sufficiency of Scripture in 2 Timothy, chapter 3. And before we read the passage together, it's helpful to understand um, the, uh, the nature of the letter we know as 2 Timothy. We call it 2 Timothy because it's the second letter we have written to a man named Timothy by the Apostle Paul. Timothy had become a convert under Paul's ministry and then had become a co-worker with Paul. And he's currently on assignment in the city of Ephesus, raising up and establishing a church that Paul planted. He's seeking to raise up new leaders. He's been there uh, for a while, but here's what's unique about 2 Timothy. Paul is writing this letter from prison, and actually that's not uncommon. Many of the New Testament letters written by Paul were written from prison, but this is written from a Roman prison anywhere from days to months before Paul's death. See, he'd been imprisoned before many times for his proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah, but this is the time uh, that led to his death sentence where he was beheaded by Caesar Nero. Now, if you read the letter from beginning to end, what you'll discover is effectively Paul is aware of his fate. This is the place where Paul reflects on his life and he says, I've fought the good fight. I've run the race with endurance. He knows he's at the end of things. 
But also, if you read it closely, you'll see that Timothy is aware that it's the end as well, and that's what Timothy is struggling with. You see, uh, Paul and Timothy are very different people. When we read stories about the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, just for example, there's an occasion where because of his preaching of Jesus, he's dragged outside the city by an angry mob and stoned and left for dead. The next thing Paul does is get up, dust himself off, and go back into the self-same city. He was committed. He was bold. Uh, Timothy loved Jesus, but he was, if you read closely, known for his timidity. Many of the exhortations Paul gives him is to remind him that God has given him gifts for the ministry. In fact, near the end of his letter, he says, you should really take a little wine for your stomach as if he's developed anxiety problems, uh, just because he's a very different person than Paul. And so imagine what's happening here. Here, Timothy is brought to Jesus by Paul. He's grown up and matured under Paul. He's sent out by Paul. He's working on Paul's behalf. And now Paul is going to die and leave Timothy to continue the work. If you read 2 Timothy closely, you'll see that Paul is trying to prepare Timothy to understand he has everything he needs for the ministry uh, that, uh, that God has assigned him. I think many of us have a similar concern. The value of this idea of the sufficiency of Scripture directly connects to the questions of our life. How is it that we are enough? How can we know God well enough? How can we live a life that is pleasing to God? And as Paul answers the question for Timothy here, we can lean in and take that answer for ourselves. Now, what Paul says in the verses just previous to where we're going to read uh, is that, that uh, Timothy has faithfully followed both the teaching and the conduct of Paul's ministry. And although there's lots of false teachers and lots of people straying from the faith, Timothy, he has higher expectations for. And he picks up in verse 14 and says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Let's continue in chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Let's pray.
Father, this statement that Paul makes that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable also applies to the passage that we're reading tonight. And so I pray, Lord, as your word proclaims, your word would be that it would be profitable to us tonight by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would teach and reprove and instruct and correct and that you would train us in the way of righteousness. We thank you, God, that you have promised your Holy Spirit as our aid so we can understand the things freely given to us by God as well as apply them to our lives. And we ask for his help in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so here, Paul reminds Timothy, calls him, in fact, to stick with what he knows. And although he starts in verse 14 saying, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it. So the first thing he says is, remember where the things you learned came from. And he's referring here not merely to himself, but also to Timothy's mother and grandmother, women by the name of Eunice and Lois, uh, who had raised Timothy in the Jewish scriptures. And so referring to all three of them, to Paul, to Eunice, to Lois, he says, remember whom you learned these things from, but he presses on beyond that. He doesn't want to just say, we've given you an example, now follow in our footsteps. He says, remember what we have taught you. And so he says, um, but as for you, verse 14, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Notice what Paul points him to here. Not merely his example, but he says, ever since you were a child, you've been acquainted with what you need. And he refers to it here as the holy scriptures. Now, a couple of things here. First off, the word there for scriptures uh, is the word for writings. In other words, he doesn't just say, you since child have been in childhood have been acquainted with the voice of God or with the word of God. Specifically, he points to the written word of God. Now, the second thing that's worth keeping in mind here is that when Timothy was a child, very likely uh, Jesus had not yet appointed his apostles. When Timothy was a child, he had not yet met Paul the apostle. He had not yet heard of Jesus. The holy scriptures that are being referred to here do not include the letter that we're reading right now being written to Timothy in his adulthood, nor any of the New Testament. Paul's reference here to the scriptures that have been at Timothy's disposal are what we call the Old Testament, from Genesis in our English arrangement of the Bible to the book of Malachi. And he says, those have been at your disposal, and he refers to them as the holy scriptures. Now he pushes beyond that. Notice in verse 16, he just doesn't refer to the holy writings of your childhood, but he expands here and he says, all scripture. Okay, and so that gives us room tonight to deal with the New Testament, and we'll come back to that. But what I want you to notice tonight is that Paul says, this is what you need. 
And this is sufficient. Notice the phrase here, verse 15, how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He says here that the scriptures are sufficient to make one wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, a couple of things that we need to point out here. Um, First off, let's just get this out of the way to begin with. When we talk about the sufficiency of scriptures, there's quite a few things that we do not mean. We do not mean that the Bible and its revelation is so complete that you can learn anything you want to know about anything and therefore need to learn nothing from anything else. In other words, when we say that the Bible is sufficient, that doesn't mean that it is the best text for you to study for your nuclear physicist final exam. Okay. When we say that the Bible is sufficient, we're also not saying that in pertaining to who God is, that it will answer every question you have about God whatsoever. Okay. In other words, the Bible is not an exhaustive exposition on every aspect, facet, and detail of who God is. The Bible constantly proclaims that there's a whole area of things that God does not tell us. Okay. There are hidden things that are not revealed and remain secret and left undiscoverable, un, I was going to say uncovered, but that's the opposite of what I want to say, remain covered from view. There are plenty of questions you can bring to the Bible, even about God, that the Bible will not answer. That's not what we mean when we say that the Bible is sufficient. Primarily, we mean three things when we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. One, that the Bible is complete enough or sufficient enough for you to truly although not exhaustively, know God. Two, that the scriptures are sufficient enough for you to truly encounter that God and experience salvation. And three, that they are sufficient enough to live a life out from, beginning from that place of salvation that is fully pleasing to him. When we say that the scriptures are sufficient, we mean that you need nothing else to know God, to be saved by God, and to live a life pleasing to God than what God has provided in his self-revelation we know as the Bible. That's what we mean when we say the sufficiency of scriptures. Now what's striking in this passage is that Paul says that even the Old Testament is able to make you wise for salvation. Now, that's striking. It's striking for two reasons. One, because Jewish, uh, all the Jews, including Timothy's mother and grandmother, would have agreed on that point, but it was a point of tension between them and Jesus. Second, Uh, If you are familiar with the Bible, you know that the Old Testament is incomplete without the New Testament, and that salvation is found in the name of Jesus Christ, and that name doesn't occur explicitly. That person doesn't appear on the pages of Scripture until we get to the Gospels in the New Testament. Okay. But when we look at the words of Jesus, uh, we can start to understand what Paul is saying here. 
there's an occasion where he's speaking with the religious leaders uh, of his own day, and he says this. He says, you search the scriptures, using the same word here, the graphe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have life, but it is they that testify of me. You have to wrap your head around this, okay? Here is a man in his 30s who is single, who is trained in carpentry, who is currently homeless and itinerant, traveling and proclaiming the kingdom of God. He says that a book that was began 1,400 years before his birth and finished 400 years before his birth was primarily written about him, a homeless Jew from Nazareth. He says, you're looking for eternal life, but the entire Old Testament scriptures point to, are fulfilled by, and are consummated in me right here and right now. Okay. In fact, notice here Paul says that they are able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul, speaking to the church in Corinth, says that when the Jews read the Old Testament scriptures, it's as if a veil hangs over their face and they cannot see the culmination, the truth, the glory of God. But he says that that veil is taken away in Jesus Christ. Okay. In other words, the Old Testament is in one sense incomplete. It presents problems that are unresolved until Jesus shows up. It presents questions that go unanswered until Jesus sh sets, uh, shows up. It presents tensions that are not fixed until Jesus shows up. In fact, the Old Testament ends with a cliffhanger, wondering if God's going to be faithful to his promises. The New Testament brings about the completion and the answer of those things and their finality in Jesus Christ. But once you have that and you go back and read, see, here's something we need to understand. Everybody Paul is writing to uh, in the New Testament are acquainted with the Old Testament and the primary place of them as the scriptures, not just for the Jews, not just for Jesus as a Jew, but for the church. In fact, it is impossible to strip the Old Testament and its influence out of the New Testament and leave anything remaining. All of the titles of Jesus, Messiah, Son of Man, Son of God, all taken from the Old Testament. Okay? Uh, when John sees Jesus coming out of the wilderness and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, what does that mean apart from the book of Leviticus? Okay? The Old Testament provides the context and the trajectory and the need for a savior. But it does here point us to something which is significant. When we say that the scriptures are sufficient to know God, to be saved by God, and even to glorify God, we need to recognize that that is completely untrue apart from Christ. The Buddhists have a saying. They say, do not mistake the finger pointing at the moon for the moon itself. We need to understand when we talk about the sufficiency of scriptures that recognizing that this book is the word of God and even believing the things that it says does not bring about salvation. Instead, as Jesus proclaims, the entire book points to and testifies 
truthfully of who he is. And so we trust not the finger, but the moon that the finger points to. We trust not the scriptures, but the true proclamation of who Jesus is, and we put our trust in him, okay, as prescribed by the scriptures. But we need to recognize In fact, some would say today, well, doesn't that downgrade the importance or the value uh, or the authority of scriptures? Because isn't Jesus the importance and the value and the authority? And we need to recognize that we have no access to Jesus apart from the scriptures. That it's the scriptures that testify and not just tell us what Jesus did in the gospels from somebody's perspective, but constantly proclaim themselves as eyewitnesses. And not just eyewitnesses who experienced these things for themselves, but also appointed as authoritative proclaimers, apostles, of the words and works of Jesus Christ and the significant meaning of his crucifixion. Okay? And so here we need to recognize that on one hand, the scriptures are sufficient because they proclaim the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus. The scriptures give us everything we need for life and godliness because they acquaint us with the one who is life and who makes us godly. In fact, it's worth pointing out that any time we deny the sufficiency of scripture, we inherently deny the sufficiency of Jesus' work on the cross. I'll show you what I mean. Turn over just a uh, a few books to the right. And look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1. Now, interestingly enough, the book of Hebrews was written to Jews who have become acquainted with Jesus Christ, have trusted in him, him for salvation, but for whatever reason are feeling drawn to go back to the old ways, to go back to the temple, to go back to the sacrifices, to go back to the Moses and the old covenant and circumcision. And so the argument that the author of Hebrews makes is that Jesus is better than all those things and to go back would be nothing short of shipwreck, to borrow one of his metaphors. But I want you to notice how he opens, uh, opens the book here in verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And so he looks over the course of history and says, at different times, And through very different methods, God has spoken. Specifically, he says here, through the prophets. Okay, And so here, he's referencing the Old Testament. And then he makes a statement of contrast, verse 2. But in these last days. Now, when he uses that phrase, last days there, he's not just saying more recently. He's making a contrast between the two ages that the Bible lays out the age before Jesus, and the age that follows Jesus. If you read the opening chapters of Acts, the first time Peter speaks to crowds, he says, Joel prophesied of the last days, and they are now upon us. Okay, we're living, if you will, in the last days. And so that's the contrast. There's the age and the age that came in Jesus, these last days. But in these last days, he says, he has spoken to us by his Son, Now, notice all of the description he gives here to Jesus. So, yes, he spoke in various ways to the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken through his son. Notice what it says. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, 
through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, the argument goes on from there, but I want you to notice that basically every line of that is reaching into the Old Testament and consummating it in Jesus Christ. And so we have creation in Genesis, and he goes, Jesus is the creator. And we have the redemption accomplished by Jesus so that Jesus is the high priest. All of these things are here. In other words, especially if you keep reading the book, what he wants to say here is that Jesus is the final word of God the final revelation, the complete revelation, God in the flesh. This is why when Jesus is speaking with Philip and Philip says, I just, I just have one favor, Jesus, just show us the Father. And he says, Philip, have I been with you so long? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's why John opens his gospel and says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if you read that in the context, John isn't saying, in the beginning was the Word. He's saying, in the beginning was Jesus. In fact, we know that because what does it say later? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In fact, it says in verse 18, no man has seen God and lived, but he who's from the very bosom of the Father, he has declared him, made him known, exegeted him. Okay. In other words, the final revelation the capstone of God's self-revelation is Jesus Christ. There's a relationship between the Word of God, the Bible, and the Word of God, the Son of God. But here's what we need to recognize. The revelation we have, that proclamation that is Jesus Christ, is not just uh, like that song from the 90s, What If God Was One of Us? That revelation is not just God taking on a human mouth and human vocal cords and walking around and speaking in the, in the presence of human ears to make himself known. It culminates in death, in burial, in resurrection, in the ascension, and seating himself at the right hand of the Father. All of these things are entailed here. That is the final revelation. Okay. When... We look elsewhere for what we need for life and godliness. When we look elsewhere for what we need to counsel those around us in their greatest difficulties, to define what's most important, to set the agenda, we cannot deny the sufficiency of scriptures without denying the sufficiency of the one scriptures point to. Okay. Now, Let's turn back to 2 Timothy. And so not only here does he refer to the Old Testament, but intentionally and specifically he expands it in verse 16. He says that the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Here he says something about the nature of scripture. Now, that's significant, especially with this label, Scripture, because we know that Paul himself not only identi identifies the Old Testament as being Scripture, 
It's something else. You see, in the first letter he writes to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, here he's giving Timothy some counsel. Specifically, the counsel is make sure that your pastors or your elders or those who are leading and teaching in the church you're setting up are well compensated. And then as Paul often does, he doesn't just make that his advice from his opinion. He makes it authoritatively by quoting the Bible. So notice what he does here in chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, for the scriptures say. Now here's the twist. First, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That's from Deuteronomy. And then second, the laborer deserves his wages. Now, what's amazing about that quote that Paul quotes here as scripture is that it's the words of Jesus as found only in the Gospel of Luke. He puts on par here the book of Deuteronomy and the book we call the Gospel of Luke. In fact, it's even more mind-blowing because Luke is a traveling companion of Paul. In other words, another way he could have said this, as my friend's book tells you, the laborer is worthy of his wages. But what does he refer to it as? Scripture. And what does he say about Scripture in the second letter that he writes to Timothy? All Scripture is breathed out by God. Now we'll come back to that, but Paul isn't the only way who sees the nature of Scripture in these terms. Peter, in 2 Peter, Now, interestingly enough, in 2 Peter, Peter finds himself to a similar place to Paul. He's getting into his old age, and he's writing to establish what will be the next generation of the church. His concerns are very much the same. And so, no surprise, he also deals with the sufficiency of Scripture. In fact, uh, he, says, uh, he says this near the end of chapter 1. In fact, I... I want to read the whole thing to you, beginning in verse 16. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He says, What we've preached to you was not some sort of scheme. It wasn't made up. It wasn't a fairy tale. It's what we saw for ourselves. And he says in verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He says, you remember the transfiguration? He says, I was there. I saw with my own eyes as Jesus was transformed before me and shone with light in clothes brighter than any laundryman can get it. And he says in verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And so he says, first, you can be assured of what I told you because I was there. Eyewitness testimony. But then notice he goes on to talk about something more sure. And what is it? Verse 19. And we have something more sure, something more authoritative, something more validating than eyewitness testimony. What is it? The prophetic word to which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He says we have a greater authority, a more sure thing for you to, uh, you know, go all in on, bet all your chips on. He says it's the prophetic word. Once again, talking about the Old Testament, the writing of the prophets. Okay? 
that it pointed to the coming of Jesus, that it laid out who Jesus would be and what he would accomplish and determined it before time as being the plan of God. And then notice what he says in verse 20. Why is it more sure? Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. He says, we know it's a sure word because it doesn't just come from some man's perspective going, here's what I think is going on. But, he says, verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God. And Peter says, all scripture was written not from personal interpretation, but by the will of God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But Peter also is referring not just to the writings of the Old Testament. How do I know this? Because just two chapters later in chapter 4, as he's giving his closing words, he references the writings of Paul. And I want you to notice the way he does here in chapter 3. Therefore, beloved, verse 14, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish or at, and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, notice this, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Peter says everybody is capable of twisting the scriptures, and Paul's letters are some of them. Okay. And so here there is a recognition, a reference to the fact that God's revelation continued in those apostles he appointed as his witnesses, which is what we have in the New Testament. It is that nature that we read about here in 2 Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God that does what? Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and therefore profitable. The value of scripture. In fact, I'll push it further because of what we're going to see tonight. The sufficiency of Scripture is based on the fact that it is God's Word. Okay? Now, when we recognize that all Scripture is breathed out by God, and if you're curious here, the, the phrase, uh, especially if you have a different translation, it says divinely inspired. The reason ESV says breathed out by God is because they're being as literal as they can to the Greek phrase that's used here. The Greek word, it's a single word, Theopneusto, okay, Theo being God and pneuma meaning breath. In fact, the way that it's parsed, it's not all scripture is divinely breathed into, as if God took the writings of men and then made them more than what they were. It's literally all scripture is the product of God's breath. That's the way that this is parsed, okay? It's breathed out by God in the same way that my words right now are breathed out by me, okay? It's a very strong statement. Because of that, it's profitable. Now, the fact, there's a few things we should say about this origin of God's word. The first is that God's word is powerful, right? That's the first thing we learn three verses into the book of Genesis. There was darkness, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God didn't make light. He spoke it into existence, okay? We're going to talk more about that in the weeks to come. The second thing we should recognize here is what makes the scriptures valuable is that they begin with God and not with man and are therefore true, faithful, 
reliable. And if you read the Psalms, if you read Deuteronomy, if you read the prophets, if you listen to the words of Jesus, if you hear the apostles in the New Testament, they all proclaim that reality, that the word of God is true. But what I want to draw your attention to that's implied here when it says all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable is that what we have in the Bible is exactly and in total what God wanted to say. In other words, what I want you to hear in this sentence tonight, all scripture is breathed out by God, is purpose. In fact, that's what we see here because he says all scripture is profitable for teaching. And then notice verse 17. It begins with that little word, that. That clause is important in the Greek. It's so important that we actually have a name for what it is, which is literally just the Greek word there. It's hina. We call this a hina clause, okay? A hina clause demonstrates purpose. Now, when we use the word that, we can use it kind of ambiguously and forget this idea of purpose that comes with this word hina. And so when I read, I always like to add a little extra word, the word so. All scripture is profitable for all these things so that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. What is God's goal in speaking forth the scriptures? What is God's purpose in providing the Bible to make you complete? Okay. The sufficiency of scripture is bound up in the purpose of God that God is seeking to accomplish a plan in his Bible is part of it. Okay. Now, that's laid out some pretty good ground. Now let's talk about uh, not just the nature of Scripture, but the sufficiency it applies. The first thing I want you to notice is actually to double back to verse 14. He says, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Okay, that little word continue there is the Greek word meno. It's one of John's favorite words in his letters and in his gospel. In John's works, it's almost always translated into English as abide. Okay? So when Jesus says, I am the vine, in John 15, you are the branches, abide in me and you will bear fruit. That's the word here translated continue. In fact, maybe a closer parallel, when Jesus in John 8 says, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. That's the word that's used here. Okay? The point is, when Paul calls Timothy here to continue on in what he has learned, he's implying that he need not go beyond it. Abide means to stay put. It means to sit in. It means to not move from. It means to soak up all there is where you are. Okay. Take Jesus' metaphor, the vine and the branches again. Okay. Where do grapes come from? They grow on the branches, but only because the branches are, con or, uh, because the branches are connected to the vine. Stay connected to Jesus and you will bear fruit. In the same way here, Paul is effectively saying, maintain, stay put, don't move beyond. Now how do I know that's what Paul means? Because that's his fear in chapter 4. Look at what he says in verse 3 of chapter 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Stay put or leave. Those are the options. 
Paul says here that we can stay put in the scriptures and have everything we need. That we don't need a personal revelation. That we don't need a degree in, in a particular uh, facet of what our world says is important to do these things. Uh, that we don't need anything but what God has already given us in the scriptures because they are sufficient. In fact, notice how Paul's statement in verse 16 covers all the bases. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, that could just be a list of four things, but they do really cover the bases. Let's go through them, okay? First, teaching. The idea there is Scripture is profitable for teaching in the sense there are things that you need to know and the Bible teaches them to you. There are places where you are ignorant that the Bible seeks to resolve. There are unknown things that God desires for you to know and makes them known through his scriptures. That's the first one. The second one, though, for reproof, or your translation might say uh, for rebuke, there are things that you believe that are not true. There are places where you are wrong. Okay? That's one of the great problems of being human, is in our finiteness, our perspective is limited which is another way of saying wrong, okay? We don't have all the pieces. We don't see over the horizon or beyond the next hillside. We see only from our perspective, and that limitation limits our ability to be right, okay? But the Bible says it's worse than that. It says not only are you finite, you're also sinful, and that sinfulness comes with a rebellious blindness, it's not just that you can't see all the light, it's that you close your eyes to the light. Okay. Now, to some degree, that is dealt with in Jesus Christ. But we're still prone to the same thing. That's why the author of Hebrews warns them against the deceitfulness of sin that hardens heart and causes us to go astray. And what does he say? Exhort one another daily to avoid that. Constantly expose yourself to the truth because we're always capable of believing a lie. When Paul says there are those who will not endure sound doctrine, but because of itching ears will lay up teachers, he's not talking about them, he's talking about us as human beings, as human nature, okay? One of the best things you can do to improve yourself as a student of the Bible is go to it assuming you are wrong. Even non-Christians will open the Bible to justify what they already think all over the world. I'm, I, I'm always shocked that Wiccans want to defend their Wiccanism from the Bible, but they do. I'm always shocked that atheists will present some of their atheistic opinions from the Bible, but they will. Okay. The authorities of the scriptures in Jesus' day primarily saw the Bible as a way to prove that they were right and better than other people. James presents a different way. He says the scriptures... The law of God is like a mirror. It shows us that we're dirty and in need of cleansing. Okay. Chesterton was living in the day and age right before World War I, and so we have a lot of things going on. Okay, The writings of Nietzsche and Marx and socialism is on the rise. There's all of these things going on, and also there's this new movement to throw out the old dogmas of religion to lean into science and evolution and all of these things. 
But what he realized is everyone around him, in his words, was seeking a religion for where they were already right. And he said, but what we really need is a religion that's right where we're wrong, that shows us where we're wrong. Okay, that's this idea of reproof. There are things right now that you believe about God, about yourself, and about the good life that are not true. And the scriptures are sufficient to correct those falsehoods, those deceptions. And then the next one, it says, for correction. Now, that might sound very similar, but it is a little bit different, okay? Uh, Rebuke is to stop bad. Correction is to take you from that place of bad back to good. Okay? Correction is to fix what is broken, to right what is wrong, to take you off the path and put you back on the path. And this is one of the things that I love about the sufficiency of Scripture because many of us have had that experience where we come to ourselves like the younger brother in Jesus' parable and we go, how did we get here? Right? When we wake up and see the mess we've made for ourselves and we go, how do I fix this? The Scriptures are profitable for correction for setting things right, not just for diagnosing what is wrong, but also for guiding us back to right, and then finally, for training in righteousness. That's to continue to do what is right, to take the things that you're currently not doing and make you more righteous, or to put it in just straight out New Testament terms, make you more like Jesus. This is what scripture is for. Do you see how that kind of covers all the bases? It presents truth, it rebukes falsehood, it takes you from brokenness and puts you on the right path, and then it leads you in that path of righteousness. If you want a similar illustration of all four of those things, just read Psalm 119. Over and over again, the psalmist rejoices in God's word because it does this stuff. But notice in verse 17, once again, the purpose. Why does it do all those things? What is the goal of Scripture? Where can Scripture take you? That the man of God, now pause. The word there for man is anthropos. It's actually generic. It's man of God like we used to talk about mankind. Okay? So if you are happier reading it man or woman of God or person of God, it doesn't really matter. That's what Paul means. Don't get hung up on the gender language here. Okay? He's speaking to everybody who knows Jesus as Savior, male and female. He's speaking to humans. So that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, there's a parallel in verses 16 and 17 that's easy to miss. Okay? It's scripture is profitable at making you profitable. All scripture is profitable at making you profitable for every good work, which all and every are the same word in the Greek, okay? There's a consummation, a completion of the circle. God didn't just present a Bible as a testimony of who he is just to sit there existing in human history. He has an agenda. The agenda is to make those who belong to Jesus Christ conformed into his image as a manifestation of his glory to the glory of God. That's the purpose. And what Paul says here is, Timothy, you've had what you needed for that since you were a kid. This is why this doctrine is so valuable. Okay, the necessity of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, all of those touch our life. 
But the sufficiency of scripture, I think, is the one that reaches the deepest into the average Christian life because we honestly don't believe it. It's why we're constantly fleeing from one thing to another, looking for that fix that will finally get us on the path, that will finally fix what is broken. It's why instead of when people bring our problem or bring their problems to us, instead of us turning to the word of God, we turn to Google. It's why instead of doing this, we look for experts in the field. Now, I want to be really clear here. Okay? Just like there can be experts in astrophysics or physics that have things to say, so also there can be experts in the human condition and the psyche that have things to say. I'm not against professional counseling. I am against how swift we are to think that there's no good counsel to be found in the word of God. And like I said, the Bible won't tell you everything. It may not address your particular psychological condition, but it will tell you the most important things about those conditions. And unfortunately, those are the things that secular counseling and sometimes Christian counseling tend to get wrong because they go against the scriptures. What I'm saying tonight is not only are the, is the sufficiency of scripture good news because we can really truly know God and not just know him but be in a relationship with him through Jesus Christ but also they are sufficient for making you profitable to other people. The sufficiency of scriptures opens up the potential sufficiency of us. When you look at the New Testament you see a handful of people appointed by Jesus and divinely empowered to do amazing stuff. And then suddenly, you find a whole lot more people doing just as amazing things with no specific office or appointment. God calls the whole church to do the work of the church and says that I've given you everything you need for it. And what he's referring to is the scriptures. And let's remind ourselves... It's not that the Bible is some sort of magic book. It's that it tells us about what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ, and it avails all of the significance of that and then lays out how we're to enter into it, okay? But in doing so, it is sufficient. This is why when Paul is talking to the church in Rome, who he's never met, which was planted by other Christians, not knowing anything about their origin except what he's heard, long-distance reputation, he says, I've written these things to encourage you, in chapter 15, knowing that you don't really need all these. In fact, you are competent to counsel one another. Now he's writing, not writing that and saying, I know you have good pastors. He's not saying, I know you have good leaders. He's saying, I know that you're competent, each and every one of you, to counsel each and every one of you. If you look in 2 Corinthians, Paul is blown away by the reality of what it means to be a minister of Jesus, a representative of Jesus, a discipler of Jesus. And he says, how are we to comprehend the fact that we take people from a kingdom of darkness and they're translated into light, take people who are dead and see them come alive, reconcile them with the God and deal with their sins? And he asks this question. One that I say amen to every time I read it. Who is sufficient for these things? But a little later, in the next chapter, he says that he thanks God who has made us sufficient in Christ Jesus. 
the book of Jeremiah. Well, let's finish here. Chapter 4, verse 1. He says here, I charge you in the presence of God. So he lays out, he says, you have all you need, and then he gives him a charge. And it's a pretty strong one. Notice the nature of this charge. He doesn't just say, I charge you as your mentor. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. That's the nature of the charge. In front of all these things, because of these things, I charge you what? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. There's only two times that the word is valuable and to be proclaimed. Now and any other time. In season and out of season. Right? He goes on and he says, Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. And then he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Okay, a couple of things there. There's only two alternatives, truth and myth. Either we stay in the truth or we wander into falsehood. That doesn't mean that everything out of the church is wrong. It means that everything outside of the scriptures is wrong somewhere. And that's a lot scarier because we don't know where, okay? And so I would encourage you, even if you've adopted some new process or principle or way of going about life, if you can't yet tell me where Scripture says it's wrong, I don't want to hear about where it's right. We, we have to come to this place that just assumes anything that is the byproduct of merely humans is merely broken. Not totally broken, not completely broken, but somehow falls short of the true revelation we have in Jesus Christ. And it's after we see that and we identify it that those things are no longer harmful and can be used beneficially. Okay. But the warning he makes here, like I said, we could easily, we could easily talk about all the craziness that goes on in the name of churches and preaching in the replacement of the sufficiency of scriptures. We could clearly just qualify all that as just being uh, purveyors to itching ears, giving people what they want to hear, and that'd probably be true. But more importantly for us tonight, you need to recognize once again that that's human nature, not just bad human nature. That's a danger that we all share. In fact, to a degree, it's something that we all fall into looking elsewhere. I mentioned Jeremiah. This is what he says. He says in chapter 2, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, God says, the fountain of living water, and have made for themselves pots, broken pots that can hold no water. Okay. Now, the first is, we never make broken pots incapable of holding water while we're close to the source. If we're exposed to and enjoying and drinking in the fountain of living water, we don't feel the need to go elsewhere. But when we do go elsewhere, what we find doesn't satisfy. They're just broken pots that can hold no water. And unfortunately, what we usually do when we identify the pot as being broken is make another pot try something else. Okay. That's why the sufficiency of scriptures is so important. 
once again, what we've learned tonight is that because God designed and gave us the scriptures, they are sufficient. They're sufficient to know God truly. They're sufficient to encounter the reality of salvation in Jesus Christ and respond to that through faith. And they are sufficient to live a life pleasing to God. And although that may include tonight a rebuke or a correction, it's also tremendously good news because it means that you have not yet exhausted the value of the Bible. You have not yet fully come to understand and fully embraced and fully incorporated into your own being through obedience what God has for you. But you need not look anywhere else. And you need not wait. I'm so glad I get a chance to mention this film. I don't know why I didn't remember it when we were talking about Revelation, but um, Terry Gilliam made a film a few years ago called Zero Theorem. And I I can't necessarily recommend it because it's Terry Gilliam. It's kind of all over the place, moralistically. But I love the premise. The premise is that there is a guy who is a genius and who is very close to solving an equation that proves the world was just an accidental byproduct of a black hole. And he's getting closer every day and he's working on this, but somewhere earlier in his life, he'd gotten a phone call and he realized when he picked up the phone that it was God and God was going to give him significance in his life. And he freaks out so much he drops the phone. And so the tension is this guy who's going to demonstrate the meaninglessness of life waiting for that existential encounter with the God who can save him from that meaninglessness. It's totally wild, and I won't tell you how it ends, but that is a purveyance of portrayal of the modern human condition, okay? But not for the Christian. We don't have to wait for the phone call. God came calling in Jesus Christ. He spoke to the prophets in days of, age, days of old and in these last days has spoken through his son and therefore has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Let me just finish with a personal testimony. I grew up acquainted with this book. I grew up in a Baptist church. Okay? I remember going to Awana and being rewarded for memorizing verses of which there were many, many, many to memorize. I remember when Mr. Knudsen gave me a homemade apple leather as a reward for memorizing all of 1 Corinthians 13. I grew up studying this book, but not applying it. I knew that Jesus died to save sinners. I didn't know that I was a sinner in need of saving. Where that changed was a small church that I wandered into in high school. And the biggest difference between these two churches was not both that they had a high view of the Bible. That was true for both of them. But this small church that I wandered into was the first place I'd ever heard a group of people who just assumed that the Bible spoke today, that it was relevant for the issues that were going on, that it wasn't just a record of stuff that God had did and said, but that it speaks today and that it says things to our lives. And I watched not only as the Bible was handled in that way, but I watched as lives and submission to it were changed in that way. And eventually I surrendered to the God of the scriptures I saw myself as the scriptures say that I am, as a sinner in need of saviors. 
and it, uh, it changed my life to the degree that there's a direct trajectory from that to here. The reason why I'm here, oh gosh, almost 20 years later, uh, is because of that. It's a devotion to knowing the scriptures that are capable of doing those things. And I have walked into places in my own life and the lives of others where I went, I have no idea how this is gonna turn out. And I have watched the word of God bring healing where there was brokenness. I've seen it bring restoration where it seemed impossible. I've seen it take people who were outright insane and not just make them upright citizens, but make them whole. I have seen it turn around so many lives And I know I haven't seen it all. And I know that the work, even God, that is doing in me, there's so much work sufficiently more, but I've seen the pattern now. And I've watched as this book has transformed me, has introduced me to the God who changes people. The sufficiency of scripture is not just a doctrine, it's a tremendous gift that God has given us that we can make use of daily, as long as we live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the capital W word that it introduces us to, Jesus, who lived the life we could not live and died the death that we deserved and rose from the grave, conquering Satan, sin, and death and making a way to bring us back into God's family, fill us and empower us with his own life and make us the children of God. And I ask, Lord, that we would turn away from all other sources and come to the source, the fountain of living water, the God who reveals himself in scripture, that we would bring our thirsts and our brokenness, and our questions, and we would lay them at, our feet, at your feet, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we would drink in the truth of your word and be satisfied. I pray this in your name tonight. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, I'm going to transition to this time of Q&A. If you've got some questions now that you've got a moment to text them in, feel free to do so. Uh, and give me just a minute to get set up.
forgot to do some cleaning, so I've still got last week's questions in here. Just a minute. Here we go. Thinking of the analogy of mistaking the finger pointing at the moon uh, for the moon itself, what are the symptoms of a person who is mistaking the word for Jesus, mistaking the finger for the moon, so to speak? When Jesus says that those around him search the scriptures, for in them they think they have life, but it is they that testify of me. He gives us the most significant interpretive rule of the Bible, which means if you don't understand how a passage of scripture connects to Jesus, you don't understand it yet. And so what I would suggest is the primary place where this goes wrong is when we use the Bible in a sub-Christian way. I'll tell you how I think of it as a preacher, okay? This is an offensive statement, so forgive me. It's supposed to be offensive. But my goal, anytime I preach, is to offend the Jew. If it makes you happier, to offend the Mormon. Uh, What I want to do is present the truths of Scripture in such a way that there's always the stumbling block block of the cross of Christ, okay? In other words, if it's just moralistic instruction that we are capable of keeping apart from Jesus Christ, then we have mistaken the finger for the moon, okay? If we have not yet gotten to the place where we see the way where God specifically in Jesus Christ provides what we need, okay? I'll put it in a little bit different language. One of the things that I always ask myself in the Bible is where do we find problems, either in the text or in the audience of the text, that I share with those people that is met by God's grace in Jesus Christ. Now, I I know that's a little bit complex, but effectively what I look for is places where I, like the audience, are in need of something only God can do. Sometimes that's revelation. Sometimes that's where are there things that I think I believe but I don't actually. Where are there things here that need to be believed? Okay. Sometimes that's recognizing Jesus as ruler. Where are there places where I need to obey because to not obey would make myself Lord instead of Jesus. And most importantly and most often, it's Jesus as redeemer. Where are there places where I'm a sinner in need of saving and I need to apply again to myself the work of Jesus Christ. I think when we do that, uh, we follow in Jesus' footsteps. In other words, we read like Christians, because we read like Christ, as if it's all about him. I will tell you that I've been working on this consistently and actively with, uh, in fact, I can even recommend some, some authors to you. Um, Brian Chapel has a great book on preaching um, called... Redeeming Expository Preaching, Christ-Centered Preaching, Redeeming Expository Preaching, uh, which is helpful in this. If you read books by guys like Edmund Clowney uh, or Graham Goldsworthy, there's quite a few people who have really focused on how do we connect all the books to Jesus, and I found that to be beneficial, but I'll tell you two things. Um, One, this is harder than it sounds. Because our primary way to read the Bible, as I already told you, the one we inherit from our culture and probably from our human nature, is just as a thing that justifies us. 
And so we read it and we go, sounds like me, and we close the book and say amen. Um, but uh, not only is it hard, but it's also the most rewarding and deepening way of reading scripture. When you see how the whole Bible connects to Christ, uh, you see the Bible afresh. You see the passage as it was meant to be. Um, and that, I think, is very valuable and significant. All right, let's move on here. What does it mean to abide in God and his word? The analogies in John are vivid, but I'm wondering what it means practically. Jesus seemed to say in John that obeying God is how you abide in him. Okay. Um, there is no getting away from the fact that at least a significant part of abiding in Christ, or as we read tonight, abiding in the word of God, uh, involves obedience. In fact, James warns us of any faith, any supposed belief that disconnects from actually working out in our life. John makes a similar warning. He says that we can't say to those around us, if the gospel is true and God's love is real and we really love other people because Jesus tells us to, we can't say, go, be warm and be filled and do nothing about their physical needs. Okay? Faith works out in obedience and where you obey is what you actually believe. I've always appreciated George MacDonald here. He says, men often seek to understand and they rarely seek to obey. He says, but for the Christian, the way to understanding is always through obedience. And he goes on, it's a long sermon, but he goes on and he illustrates with Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, if a man strikes you on the face, turn to him the other cheek. And he says, there is no learning the truth of that without trying. But also, there's a significant correlation between believing that Jesus is Lord and living it out, okay? Um, and so obedience, I think, is a significant part of this. But I think another part of this, and we could still call it obedience, but it's different than behavior, has to do with, um, with surrendering our opinions to the word of God. Abiding in God's word means not taking our perspective or our opinion or our truth, to put it in postmodern terms, as the final word and allowing the scriptures to reshape our understanding of reality. I think of Peter, and this involves obedience because it often does. I think of Peter who's in the boat and Jesus says, why don't you cast out the net, Peter? Why don't you try and catch some fish? And Peter says, Jesus, I fished all night and caught nothing. Now, on top of that, Peter is a fisherman who knows there's a reason why you fish at night and not midday. It's because the fish are not accessible when the sun is high and the heat is hot. And then he says something significant. He says, nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down my nets. We do that surrender when it comes to truth as well. I've illustrated with it before, but also uh, in the ministry of Jesus there's a place in John chapter 6 where Jesus begins to speak explicitly of his death in ways that are intentionally offensive to the Jewish mind. Remember that the Jews were to drain all of their food of blood to be kosher. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have nothing to do with me. And it says many at that time tap out, walk away. Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, are you going to leave too? 
And they say, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. I think that's the only place in the entire gospel stories where we find humility in the disciples and they confess a lack of understanding. Jesus says, are you ready? To James and John, are you ready to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to undergo? And they say, yes. They have no idea what's coming. Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter says, others, well, others may, but I will not. But there's the one place where they're just as dumbfounded as everyone else by the truth of Jesus. They can't see it yet, but they know the truth they found in him, and so they give him credit for the things they do not yet understand. How is the way that God speaks to us today different from how God breathed scripture? Okay, a couple of things here. Um, first off, a primary way God speaks to us through, through today or today is through scripture. If you want to know what God's will for your life, what we're talking about with the sufficiency of scripture is God has already said it and once again, if you read the book of Hebrews, is still saying it. He takes the Old Testament and he says, for God says, present tense, not God said, speaking to his own audience, he recognizes that through the scripture, God still speaks. Now, second, I believe, in fact, even I believe this because the Bible says it, that God is still capable of giving visions and dreams that the gift of prophecy was given to the church and that involves God speaking to his people. But one of the ways that's significantly different is that we now have a standard of God speaking. In other words, only the word of God, the Bible, is authoritative. Now, when the Reformation happened and they were dealing with these beliefs, one of the ones that they presented against the Catholic Church was sola scriptura which means uh, only the scriptures, and it was speaking of final authority. But right on the heels of the Reformation, a new group sprung up known as the Anabaptists, and they pushed it further. They pushed it into a privatization of faith and basically said that God does speak through the word, but he speaks privately and uniquely to the individual, and they elevated that perspective as being most important and significant. Okay, and so, for example, some people look back on the Anabaptist tradition and they call it tradition zero. Like your blood, you know, you can be uh, type O. Uh, they're tradition O. There's no other context for anything except for the personal experience of Jesus Christ. And that viewpoint rules and reigns today, the privatization of these things. But any prophecy, according to the Thessalonian letters, uh, is to be tested. Okay. It's to be held up against, as Deuteronomy says, what God has already said. It's to be weighed by the church before it's outright received. And so there's a difference in authority. Um, and then the last thing I want to talk about um, with this question um, is that the way that God speaks to us today can be a spark but can never be the fuel of a relationship with God. We're a culture that right now, like the zero theorem character, 
are so longing for that existential touch of God, there's many opportunities out there that basically offer an encounter. And I think a good deal of those things are probably right and true, but they will not conform you to the image of Christ. They will not accomplish what only the scriptures can accomplish. They can be the spark of a restoration to God or a entering in in a deeper way, but they will not fuel change and transformation. Only the scriptures can do that. And so even in those places, even the still small voice uh, is not designed to do what the scriptures are designed to do and is therefore different. How much control did Paul and Peter and those they influenced have on which writings made it into the Bible? Okay. Um, so, when we talk about canonization, which means which books are Christian scriptures and which are not, the question here is focusing on the, uh, on the Old Testament, I assume, but we'll deal with the New Testament as well. First, it's recognizing that the Jewish world had a basically closed canon by the days of Jesus. Um, basically, there was a, a broad agreement on what made up the Old Testament. And we see that represented in the New Testament that quotes all but seven of the books we find in the Old Testament. Uh, and three of those seven are actually in the Minor Prophets, which was known as the Book of the Twelve. Even though it was 12 books, it was holistic in one. So we can say basically all but five. And they're not surprising because they're shorter. Uh, it's, it's Esther, it's Ecclesiastes, um, it's Song of Songs. Um, so some of them are very specific on their topic, and it just doesn't come up. But we see, we see kind of a codified and consistent thing. In fact, when the Reformation happened, and there was a disagreement on what's known as the Apocrypha, uh, one of the reasons why part of the Apocrypha, which predated Christ, was rejected by the Reformers is because it wasn't seen by the Jews as being part of their Bible. And so they said, if they didn't receive it and it came before Christ, why would we receive it? And so the Catholic Church maintained that. If you open a Catholic Bible, you'll find another section. Uh, but the, the Reformation set those things aside. It, interestingly enough, they still thought they were worth reading for Christians in the same way we would say a C.S. Lewis devotional is. They just weren't scripture. Okay. Now, when it comes to the New Testament, um, it is a little bit harder to understand why the church recognized one writing as canonical and others as not, specifically because there's never a criteria that's listed. What we do see is a growing agreeance of the church um, that as the letters of Paul and Peter and James are collected, are more and more recognized as such. There were, excuse me, a few books that were... Um, questioned that are now in our Bible, specifically Revelation, uh, James, um, and a few others, okay? There are no books that were seen as authoritative and then were later rejected, um, just to get the understanding. But here is what seems to be primary in these things, okay? What they were looking for was the provenance of the text. Where did it come from? And it needed to be two things. One, it needed to be in the direct generation that follows Jesus, okay, the eyewitness generation. And two, it needed to come from direct connection to the apostolic witness. So, for example, the Gospel of Mark 
Mark is just a young kid when Jesus is on the scene. We don't encounter him till the book of Acts. He's not an apostle. We never find him in a position of leadership, and yet we're pretty sure he wrote the Gospel of Mark. But what's significant about the Gospel of Mark it is, is it is very clearly a codification of the preaching of Peter. So, for example, it's more honest and more full of things that happened to Peter than any other place. It's written to the church in Rome, where, according to 2 Peter, we find both Peter and Mark hanging out and working together in ministry. Okay? In fact, even the timeline for when the Gospel of Mark was written is probably when Peter, like in 2 Peter, is in his old age, and Mark goes, okay, before you die, let's put it on paper. Right? Before that, there was no need for a definitive Gospel because Peter was teaching um, those seem to be the criteria, but I have to be honest. There's still books that, that we just don't know enough about to know why they were accepted. Hebrews is a perfect example. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. There's lots of theories, and I have my pet theory, but that's all it is. Uh, but, uh, but we do find that it was generally recognized and accepted, and by, uh, by the second century, it was almost done, and by the third, it was basically agreed upon church-wide, but what they looked for were things that came from those appointed as witnesses, as Jesus had promised. Can you expand on how the Holy Spirit interacts with the Word? What role does the Holy Spirit play in communicating the sufficiency of scriptures? Okay. So um, let's just start just to lay some groundwork and talk about uh, spiritual gifts in the Bible. Okay. What about gifts like prophecy uh, or tongues or these things? Um, the first thing we should recognize is that we want to avoid a false dichotomy that over-elevates the spirit of the gifts as opposed to the spirit who wrote scripture when it's the self-same spirit, okay? Um, but pushing on further, we need to recognize that the Bible doesn't just portray the Holy Spirit as the author of scripture, like we saw in 2 Peter, but also that he plays a significant part in the church interpreting and understanding and applying the scriptures, okay? And so we looked at 2 Corinthians last week, and we, we pointed out, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians, we pointed out that Paul identifies that the nature of the apostolic witness of God's assignment by Jesus Christ as these men as apostles included both the Spirit instructing them in the things that were freely given them in Christ and then giving them the words, okay, but as the passage goes on, he moves beyond himself and starts to talk about how the Spirit works in your average Christian like you and I. And this is what he says. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. In other words, first thing he says is we need to receive the Spirit, which is promised to us and available 
in Jesus Christ so that we can understand the scriptures. Because in and of our natural self, we just won't. Now, that doesn't mean that if a non-Christian opens the Bible, it will be gibberish on the page. In fact, when we talk about the clarity of scripture next week, we will include its broad reality of clarity, which is true of all people. What the Spirit does is not illuminate the scriptures, but illuminate our hearts. Okay? And so the difference is that the non-Christian reads the things of the Bible and they're folly, the author says here, foolish to him. But the Spirit makes it vivid and true and brings about conviction and application. To some degree, that's true for non-Christians as well. That's the ministry that Jesus said the Spirit would do. When he comes into the world, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Okay. Um, but the second thing it says here is uh, that for the spiritual person, it says, verse 16, who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, quoting the Old Testament, but we have the mind of Christ. In other words, through the Spirit, we have access to the author of the Scriptures. And in the same way that if somebody wrote a letter and you wrote them back and said, what did you mean here? We have that sort of connection uh, to the Holy Spirit today. Now, a few things need to be said, okay? First off, like we'll see next week in clarity of Scripture, that doesn't remove the fact that God chose to reveal himself by the rules of grammar, okay? In reason, in context, okay? In other words, the way that we understand the Bible, even when it involves the Spirit, is not against the grain of what the Bible actually says or means. Okay. Now, God can do what he wants, and he can speak through a donkey to Balaam if he needs to. But I, didn't, I wouldn't encourage any of you to find a barn and sit in front of a donkey and say, okay, God, I'm ready. Right? We need to recognize God condescends to make himself known, and all of us probably have a place where the Bible said something it doesn't mean, and it impacted us. Okay? God's good like that, but don't make that your means don't make that your primary encounter with the scriptures. Instead, read it the way the Spirit chose to speak it, which is in particular genres, which is in particular grammatical and syntax, okay? Which is in particular sentences and contexts and all of these things. Um, but, uh, but we need to recognize that when we come to the scriptures, we should come humbly. We should come in prayer. We should ask God to speak, us, speak to us. We should ask the Spirit to teach us. Not just because we need the Spirit, like we read here, but because the Spirit is available. Okay. And so, so that's what I would suggest, that the Holy Spirit's role is significant, not just as the author of Scripture, but also the instructor of Scripture, the illuminator of Scripture. All right. Uh, I don't see any other questions. Does anyone want to shoot in some last-minute ones before we close for the night? Okay. Sorry, I know it takes time to text. I'm just going to drink a glass of water. spoils the whole anonymous texting thing if I say, are any of you texting right now? So, so we won't do that. We'll just go ahead and close. If you do have questions, continue to send them in. Save the number in your phone. Um, and if I don't have a chance to answer them uh, in the next few Sunday nights, I promise to respond privately, which the service allows me to do. But let's go ahead and praise.
uh, pray and close for the night. God, I'm, I'm reminded of the words of Jonathan Edwards when he says, there's a difference between knowing honey is sweet and tasting it for ourselves. And when it comes to the sufficiency of scripture, God, there's no better teacher than our own experimentation to taste and see that the Lord is good, to meditate on your word, to uh, read it and make it a part of the rhythms of our life, to study it and seek to understand it, to find places to work it out in our lives through application, to share it with those around us. And I pray that as we do so, we would taste the sweetness that we would be able to resonate more and more with Psalm 119 and the goodness and the love that the psalmist had for your word. We thank you, Lord, that because the scriptures are sufficient, we can truly know you. We can encounter your whole plan of salvation and receive it for ourselves in faith in Jesus Christ. And we can live a life that is fully pleasing to you. I pray, Lord, that we would live here, that we would abide in your word. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.